Today's reading is found in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, if you'd like to follow along. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, the blessings that we have just heard of, may we be the blessed. May we inherit the kingdom and see your face, be called your sons and your daughters. May we be fed by your word this morning. Feed us, I pray in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Jesus of Nazareth is the king that has come, that all the Old Testament had been anticipating, and yet he's a king that no one expected. And so this unexpected king climbs up some unnamed Galilean mountain, and from there he launches a sermon that will conquer the world. Now we've heard him say that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His first words in his public ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if they were asking at that time, as maybe we would ask today, what? How on the earth is the kingdom of heaven near, at hand, like almost present? It takes no genius to look around our world and see that this is no heaven because there's poverty and there's sorrow and there's corruption and there's injustice and there's cruelty and godlessness and wars and persecutions. And if that's obvious in our day, how much more so in Christ's day when things were far darker and the Romans ruled with an iron fist? So how can Jesus possibly talk about the nearness of the kingdom of God? Well, just as Jesus is the king that no one was expecting, so also is his kingdom. A kingdom that no one expects, the kingdom of heaven, which Christ claims has now invaded the kingdoms of the earth. It is what his proclamation is all about. And yet it takes a special, eyes, a special set of eyes to see this kingdom. And so today, as we begin reading this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to give his disciples eyes to see Heaven's glories on earth. Heaven breaking open on earth. 
And as Christ's disciples, when we, when we have those eyes, we're going to realize just how near the kingdom of heaven truly is. So we come to this passage, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to spend a little bit of time introducing what this great sermon is, very briefly. We're going to talk about the blessings of the kingdom of heaven, that they are present and they are future, and that the Beatitudes, which we're considering today, are for those who receive, not for those who earn. In the first week in the sermon series in Matthew, I said there are five great discourses in this gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of these five discourses, and it happens to be the longest of the five. In fact, we're not going to get all the way through the Sermon on the Mount in this sermon series until early March, which is awesome. Also, this is the longest single teaching of Jesus that we have recorded. So it would do us well to pay attention to it, to invest ourselves in it, as we will invest in it as a church. Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus delivers the greatest sermon ever heard by human ears. Not only is the content revolutionary and transformative, but Jesus spoke with such power that the crowds were stunned. They were awestruck. They were in complete wonder by this carpenter from Nazareth. Listen to how Matthew puts it. This happens at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching as one of them who had authority and not as their scribes. And perhaps one or two of you have been moved by one of my sermons. More likely, you have been wowed by another preacher you've heard somewhere else. But no one compares to the magisterial potency of Jesus Christ delivering the Sermon on the Mount. Metaphorically speaking, the Sermon on the Mount alters the orbit of the world. Because this is Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God, what it looks like, how those within the kingdom are supposed to live on earth. As one author put it, the Sermon on the Mount is the beginner's guide to the kingdom of God. Now, yeah, it is the beginner's guide, but there is so much depth here. It's so much more than just for beginners, and there are libraries that have been written trying to unpack the gravity of the Sermon on the Mount. And perhaps the most famous beloved section of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. And books have likewise been written on the Beatitudes, and there are books that have been written on just single lines within the Beatitudes. And so today I'm going to cram all nine of the Beatitudes into a single sermon Maybe it's eight Beatitudes, on depending, depending on how you count. But so this means that, that our expose of the Beatitudes today is going to be very basic and rudimentary, and I hope that it encourages you to dive deeper in your own studies, both in terms of understanding and obedience by what we see here in the Beatitudes. Jesus is unfolding a great reality for us. We must lash ourselves to that reality. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. 
At the end of chapter 4, it said that Jesus' fame had spread throughout the entire region. And crowds were flocking to him, people from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem, Decapolis, Syria, and, and beyond. It just says beyond the Jordan. It was coming from everywhere to see who this man is, this miracle worker. Maybe they want a teaching. Maybe they want to be astonished by, or maybe they want a healing. Maybe they want to be astonished by a teaching. Now remember, Jesus has moved now to Capernaum in Galilee, northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's very hilly there. The slopes rise out of the water quite steeply. And so it's very likely that Jesus has, has left the city limits of Capernaum and he's kind of wandering into this more desolate area that's maybe north and a little west of Capernaum. And the crowds follow him there. And then they begin to ascend some prominent hill that overlooks the water. And somewhere along the way, Jesus turns around, seeing these crowds, he sits down, and he begins to speak. Before we do get into those Beatitudes and what he says, you need to see that there's something going on here beyond the sermon. Matthew wants us to see it There is a profound historical echo, a covenantal reshaping that's going on when Jesus goes up the mountain and delivers something like the law of the kingdom of God. There is an unmistakable link to when Moses went up Mount Sinai to receive and then deliver the law of God to Israel. This this comparison would have jumped off the page to every first century Jewish reader which Matthew was writing to. He's reading to or he was writing to that first century Jewish reader. And so they would have seen this with crystal clarity. But as similar as these images are, Moses going up Sinai, Jesus going up this mountain, there are some significant differences. Moses receives the law of God. Jesus is God, out of which this new law emanates. It bursts out of him. When Moses goes up the mountain, the people dare not go with him. They are terrified of God on the mountain. When Jesus goes up the mountain, the people flock to him. He is supremely approachable. And the crowds are with him. The people are with him. And then surrounded by the crowds, Jesus delivers the law of the kingdom of God. I will qualify that. Just as Jesus is a king of another sort, his kingdom is a kingdom of another sort, so is his law a law of another sort. You'll see what I mean shortly. Notice verse 1. It says, His disciples came to him. The entire Sermon on the Mount is being delivered to the disciples. Yes, there are crowds there from all over, Jews and likely Gentiles. But it's more like they're eavesdropping on what Jesus is saying to his disciples. They're overhearing it, which means (laughs) if you are a disciple of Jesus, then these words are for you. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The word beatitude 
That's derived from the Latin word for blessed, blessed, blessed. I think you see it a lot on wall decor, maybe on a pillow. Maybe it's preceded by a hashtag, hashtag blessed, right? It's printed on clothing, it's everywhere. It's become a cliche, like a a Christian trope, blessed. But far from overdone tropes, that's not what Jesus is offering here. He's, he's speaking about something that's entirely countercultural, that's revolutionary, that's earth-shattering. It's an upside-down kingdom compared to the kingdoms of the earth. And so when Jesus says blessed or blessed, what does he mean? What is he talking about? The, the cliche indicates like a state of happiness, and, and there's truth in that, but it's more. It's more than happiness, otherwise it would be, I think, rather cruel for Jesus to tell people who are mourning that, no, you're actually happy. Instead, Jesus is talking about a blessedness that transcends the woes of the earth. It's a, it's a joy that's indestructible. He, indestructible. He speaks of a supreme satisfaction that comes with right relationship to God. That's what this blessedness is. Satisfaction that comes from being in right relationship with God. And I don't know of any clearer expression of this blessedness than what we read, written by David, in Psalm chapter 16. In verse 10, he writes, My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What a blessed state that is. A soul bursting with joy. And notice that as David writes, there are these, the, the future is flowing into his present moment. David is he's hoping in the resurrection, right? You're not going to see my flesh, you're not going to allow my flesh to see corruption. You're not going to let me descend down to Sheol. He's hoping in the resurrection. And his whole being rejoices. Like it, those glories are, are coming into this moment. He's presently experiencing it. And so David is on earth. And he's looking up at heaven, and heaven's rays are, are warming him, filling him with joy, even though, even though he'll be consumed by heaven's light in the future. A future reality, a future hope that fills the present moment with joy. This is a fundamental reality in the kingdom of heaven and one that Jesus wants every one of his disciples to understand. Future glories become today's joys through faith. That's why Jesus can declare that we are able to experience blessedness while we are also experiencing Poverty or mourning or persecutions or whatever. Because there are future glories that are coming, meant to produce today's joys. So you see, the Sermon on the Mount is indeed deep. All of this time, and we've only looked at the first word of the Beatitudes. And we could go deeper. (laughs) But now let us see who are the blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
who are the poor in spirit. These are the humble who have absolutely nothing to offer God. They are desperate for God's provision and God's salvation. It's just as David wrote in Psalm 34. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. David wrote that psalm about himself. And when he did, he was not poor in terms of money. He was poor in terms of his ability to help himself. He had no way to help himself. He was desperate for God to move, desperate for the Lord's salvation. He was poor in spirit. You see, the poor in spirit recognize their destitute condition. They recognize that God possesses every wealth. All is his and none is yours. And if it is ours, it's because he has given it. We're hungry for God. I shouldn't use the word hungry yet. We are desperate for God to move on our behalf. And so the poor in spirit have a deep understanding that there is nothing you could ever do that would earn your way into heaven. You are so far away from entrance into heaven on your own works. And so the poor in spirit are the polar opposite of the self-righteous. Remember, just last week, and I've already said it, Jesus declared, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Are not the poor in spirit marked by a spirit of repentance? Repent. Recognize your spiritual poverty. Recognize that you can't do anything that would please God on your own. Repent. And yours is the kingdom of heaven. Repent, Jesus says, and the kingdom of heaven is near. An amazing fit. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. This is not necessarily or entirely a statement about timing. Like it's coming to you in the future. Well, that's true. This is much more profoundly a statement about certainty. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. So if you're poor in spirit, then, then truly, entirely, absolutely, yours is the kingdom of heaven. The riches of the kingdom belong to you. You can bet your life on it. It is yours. You don't possess it, yet you possess it. And every one of these promises in the Beatitudes functions just like that. It's yours, and it will be yours. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think this one's often misunderstood. When Jesus says those who mourn, he's not talking about those who are suffering from bereavement. If you suffered the loss of a loved one, it would be strange and perhaps cruel to say it's really not that bad because you'll be comforted. Now, there is truth in that. You know, there is comfort in knowing that one day that there, there is a reunion, that death has not defeated those in Christ. There is truth in that. But this is not really what Jesus is after when he talks about those who are in mourning. 
You're going to see that each one of these Beatitudes has a reflection in the Psalms. And when we go there, it helps to illuminate what Jesus is really after when he declares these blessings. Psalm 119 helps us to understand the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about. Psalm 119, 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Blessed are those who mourn because injustice and lawlessness fills the land. Blessed are those who are grieved by godlessness. And there's the world taking pleasure in its evils and its pride, devoting a whole month to pride. This is a kingdom of darkness that we're in the midst of. But the repentant are grieved by these evils. We are grieved by the evils within and the evils of the world. Christ's disciples are grieved by by our own sins because we see on the cross the great cost of our sins. We're grieved by the sins of the world because it's not meant to be this way and there are countless souls hurling themselves into the eternal fires and how grievous this is. It should cause us to mourn. Disciples of Jesus are not called to a light-hearted existence, just whimsically floating through this earth for pleasure and fun. No, we are to be pierced by such sorrow that wickedness, wrought, that, that wickedness creates in our world, this twofold grief. Weep over the sin within, weep over the sin without. Just as Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, so also must his disciples be. For then we shall be comforted. And as we were promised, God will wipe away every tear from your eye. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. It's not being a doormat. It's not being a beta. Quite the opposite. Meekness is strength withheld. It is rights unclaimed. The meek withhold their strength. They let go of their rights in order to serve and love others. Think of Jesus. He could have called down legions of angels and annihilated his enemies. And instead, in meekness, he took the shame and the agony of the cross. He could have taken up his rights as king, as God, and yet he did not consider it something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, and in meekness, he allowed sinners to crucify him as a criminal so that the sinners could be forgiven and redeemed. And Jesus' disciples are called to a similar meekness, to meekness that David writes about in Psalm 37. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. When we're wronged, you might want to strike back, physically, verbally, You might want to lash out. You might want to demand your rights. And as Americans, how quick we are to demand our rights. But the meek lay these things aside and wait upon the Lord. 
Vengeance is his. He will vindicate. Fret not yourself. Do not worry. Wait upon the Lord in all meekness, and you shall inherit the earth. And that's what meekness is truly marked by, waiting on the Lord rather than taking things into your own hands. And I love that this promise, what is promised here, you shall inherit the earth, is not just ethereal and spiritual and in some far-off place. No, Christ promises the earth, this earth, the earth. He promises it. It's more than this earth, too. It is this earth, but it's also the earth when, when heaven has fully come and all has been perfected. And so if the meek are to inherit the earth, we must care for it as precious. As Amy Jill Levin writes, the point is not to strip the earth of its resources any more than we'd strip gold from our great-grandmother's wedding ring. We can demand, we can take, we can strike, but the meek serve and wait upon the Lord. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is at its essence hungering and thirsting for God. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. What would it be like if we really hungered and thirsted for God like that? That's what Jesus is talking about. Desperation for righteousness, eagerly longing for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven, yearning with all that you are to see the return of the King, to see Him in His full glory, to be face to face with the living God. And if your soul pants after such things, then you shall be satisfied. See that there's no room for self-satisfaction here. It says you will be satisfied. Some versions might say you will be filled if you hunger, God will feed you. You cannot feed yourself. He will give to you his righteousness. No self-righteousness in the kingdom of God. There are only those who are filled by the goodness of God, by clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so if you hunger and thirst after these things, it's yours. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It would be really easy to see this as a quid pro quo kind of statement. Give a little mercy, get a little mercy. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The blessed merciful are those whose entire disposition is given over to mercy. Like emanating out of the very core of who you are, mercy. You could take offense, but instead, mercy. And where there's an annoyance, mercy. And where there's yet another error, mercy. The merciful person is quick to see things from the other, the other person's point of view. Like, what's going on with them that they would do this thing? Mercy. What's their struggle? And how's, how am I exempt from such a struggle? So, mercy. Am I any better? So mercy. I mean, if you offend someone or annoy someone or mess up again, 
Don't you want mercy? I want mercy. I need it. And has not God shown his great mercy, his incredible mercy that flows to us through the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness, forgives us from every vile thing we've ever done or thought? And so God, as God has done for you, and as you would want others to do for you, so should you show mercy. And at the very end, or towards the end of this sermon, we'll see Christ talk about the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Show mercy, because you've been shown mercy. As David writes in a song, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. The kingdom of heaven is filled with the merciful, rather than the judgmental. Jesus' disciples offer no scorn or judgment for failure. We offer mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In our culture, the heart, I think, is most often associated with emotions. And there's all this nonsensical babble about going around and following your heart. But that's not what the heart is in the Bible. The heart, it does include your emotions, but it's also your psychology, your desires, your, your thought. In essence, your heart is your essence. The pure in heart are those who are entirely uncorrupted. Wrap your head around that. Entirely uncorrupted, de- desiring only truth, hating all deceit. So no lying to yourself, no lying to others, no reveling in the lies of the world. False desires, no false desires, no false behaviors. Because since God is pure, only the pure can approach him. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from his salvation. It's as Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then Scripture goes ahead and it tells us that the heart is desperately sick, deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And I need to have a pure heart so I can see God? Jesus says it. You need to be perfect. No one with impurity of heart, any impurity, will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Being a peacemaker is not about being a people pleaser. It's not being afraid of conflict. This is not blessed are the peacekeepers. This is blessed are the peacemakers. Big difference. Peacemakers bring together those who are estranged. They're actively seeking ways to end hostilities, right? So peacemakers confront those who are difficult about their difficulties, if they're being difficult to people. They're unafraid of hard conversations with the divisive. If only peace would be wrought. We want to see peace, not division. 
And peacemakers often risk becoming collateral damage. But they self-sacrificially push forward for the sake of reconciliation. Again, from Psalm 34, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. There's something godlike in being a peacemaker. Thus they shall be called sons of God. The sons of God, the children of the kingdom, they are serious about their ministry of reconciliation, reconciling the world unto God, the greatest possible way we can engage in peacemaking. And so these peacemakers will be given full benefits of the kingdom of heaven as sons and daughters of the living God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You might have noticed that each one of these beatitudes is, is, about those, is for those who is pursuing righteousness. Righteousness in God, rightness with God. They're of the kingdom of, the, of heaven. They're not of the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world, which is in rebellion against God, rages against him and wants nothing to do with him. And so the world will rage against us when we pursue righteousness and perse- persecute those who love the righteousness of God. And I think about those that I have met personally, those in Iran, Iranian Christians who are facing prison today and those in Iraq who've had to flee the country and those in Nigeria whose families are actively being hunted because they love righteousness. Psalm 119, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. No matter the persecution, the hardship, allow me to keep the testimonies of your mouth, your word. And so those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are willing to count everything as loss, even their own lives, if it means that the righteousness of God will be be received by more people and will spread over this earth even further. Indeed, Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are bringers of the kingdom of God. Blessed are they. For even if the kingdom of earth rejects them, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets were persecuted and they were slandered and falsely accused in their time. And yet God has vindicated them. We see it here. In their time, everybody thought they were wrong. But they are the truly blessed. You hear a lot of talk about being on the right side of history. You know how to be on the right side of history? Live your life for Jesus. Live and die in the name of Jesus and let them slander you for being a Christian and let them take away your rights and scoff at you or worse, you share in the sufferings of Christ. 
as the prophets did, so you will do. It's like a badge of honor. And rejoice. Be glad. Great are your rewards kept in heaven for you, imperishable and undefiled and unfading. History is on your side, brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that heavy to you, these Beatitudes? If you're like me, and you hear these nine attributes of the blessed, then you see just how painfully you fall short. I see how painfully I fall short. Poor in spirit, and I know I'm racked by pride. Mourning over godlessness, and yet I am so prone to forget God. Hungering for righteousness, I give in to my fleshly appetites all the time. Merciful, no, I'm spring-loaded to be judgmental. Pure in heart, and I'm gripped by filth. A peacemaker, sometimes it's more fun to just throw gasoline on the fire. Persecuted, comfort's really nice. Ready to be reviled while I so desperately cling to my reputation. And so if Jesus is delivering the law of the kingdom of God, then I need to admit that I am entirely unfit for the kingdom of God. I can't help but relate to Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. I'm going to wash with the uncleanliness of the world. And so what hope do I have? Where does my hope come from? I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and the earth. And I lift up my eyes and there he sits. On the mountain overlooking Galilee immensely approachable. And even though he is God in lowliness of spirit, he'd emptied himself to become like one of us. And he is the one who weeps over the perishing unrighteous. And in breathtaking meekness, he takes the cross, his only food to do the will of his Father, even unto death. He, the spotless lamb, perfectly pure in heart, the prince of peace, He forgives the wicked and redeems them and reconciles us unto God. And he was slandered and persecuted to turn aside the punishment that I deserve. He, Jesus, the only blessed. And in him are all the blessings. And it's wonderful news. Wonderful news because the law of the kingdom of heaven is that you must not try to earn your way in. You cannot be good enough, but Christ's righteousness is enough. Trust him and he covers you. He clothes you. He washes you in righteousness. Be reconciled unto God, writes Paul. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By faith in Jesus, us sinners become the very righteousness of God. And I know I've said it before, but that is astounding. Astounding to think that us, 
and all of our filth can become the very righteousness of God, living and walking on this earth. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's more stunning than a heart can understand. But by faith, it is yours. It is truly yours. Yours is the kingdom and the comfort and the earth and the satisfaction and God's mercy and God's presence and God's family and the unfading heavenly rewards. All the blessedness of the kingdom of heaven is yours in Christ Jesus our Lord. So repent and let go of your old way of living and trust in Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and by faith in Jesus and because of Jesus, The certainty of your future glories become today's joys. It's the law of the kingdom of heaven. Trust in the promises of God. We thank you, Christ, for being our righteousness, for being the blessed one who brings to us the blessing when we do not deserve it, cannot earn it, are so far from it, But by a cross, through an empty tomb, you reconcile us to God. We worship you. We praise you. May these glories cause our whole being to rejoice. And the sorrows of today, might they be overshadowed by the joys of tomorrow. We love you, Father, because of the great love that you have given to us. Now help us to live in this kingdom as truly blessed. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.